Uh, If you have a Bible with you, if you want to find the book of Revelation, which is right at the end, the last book of the Bible. So when we finish that, we'll just be done. (laughs) We are going to, over the next seven weeks, we're going to work through, uh, we're not going to do the whole of the book of Revelation, just chapters two and three. And we're going to look at uh, what are known as uh, the seven letters to the seven churches, which we'll explain as we go through it. Now, the book of Revelation, if you're a Christian here, um, you might have read it before. And it's the sort of, it's one of those bits of the Bible that what you can do is, it's a bit like when you read a, the genealogies, you know, those big long lists of people, or when you read, you know, Song of Songs or some bits in Ezekiel, and you think, well, that's interesting, but I don't really know what to do with it. So you kind of file it like in a, in a box over here somewhere, the sort of, I'll come back to that later box, and then you never do. Uh, because it is peculiar. There are bits in Revelation that can be baffling, uh, can just seem plain weird. And there are people that are way, way smarter than me, people who spend their lives studying the Bible, who disagree, who don't really know what some of it's all about, who are still trying to work it out. Um, so we will work through it little by little. I think what it's helpful to know is that although it's not easy, it says this about itself in verse three of chapter one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So I'd encourage you just to lean into this as we go through it because there's blessing to be had even amongst things that might seem baffling and confusion. There's so much in here that will serve you and will do you good. And part of what this book tries to do, or not tries to, what it does, is it helps to unveil a world to us which is perhaps beyond our understanding. A bit like if you've ever read Lord of the Rings or any kind of fantasy novel or movie, they use kind of imagery and symbolism to explain a world that we can't quite get our head around. It's trying to explain to us a spiritual reality that is alien to our world, so it uses pictures and imagery to try and bring it to life for us. And you might read Revelation and think, well, that's all good, but doesn't it it seem a bit out of touch? You know, what, what does it mean? What's it got to do with my life here today, now, here, living out life in this great city? Well, it has an awful lot to do with your life today. Perhaps mainly it gives hope. It gives hope because you read this book and one of the overwhelming messages that comes across is that God will win. Or even even greater than that, that Jesus has already conquered. That this great victory has been won over death, over sin, over the devil. That on the cross, Jesus won a great victory for us. And this book paints the full reality of what that really means both then when it was written 2,000 years ago, but what it means for us believers in Jesus now, today. There's one word that appears in each of these seven letters to these seven churches, and it's a word that you'll all be familiar with because it's probably, you might be wearing it on some of your clothes and some of your shoes, uh, Nike or Nike, however you like to say it in the Greek, Nikeo. It's this word that means to overcome, to conquer, to have victory. 
And through this wonderful victory that Jesus has won for us, there's a promise for us within that. There's something for us to enjoy within that too, that we get to enjoy the fruit of that victory. We get to conquer in life through all the sufferings and troubles of life that we can live a life in Jesus which has a sense of victory about it. A sense of the wonder of knowing him and enjoying him and being able to overcome in life as we go. And each of these letters is going to address a different challenge to that and how we can help to overcome it and to work through it. And in a sense, the whole book of Revelation is really written to these seven churches, but there is a unique letter to each one, and we kind of get to read their mail as we go through it. We get to read what Jesus wanted to say to each of these churches, which were real churches with real believers in what is now Turkey uh, 2,000 years ago, but it has a message to us too. And as Jesus writes these letters, one way you could perhaps describe them is they're love letters from Jesus. As you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it builds towards this wedding supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb of Jesus Christ with his bride, the church. In a sense, one way you could read the book of Revelation is as a romance of a story of Jesus' profound love for his people. And these letters help to uh, love letters to his church. Now, some of them don't read very loving. <laughs> we'll get to that. But they're full of love towards us and they help us to know more of him. So let me read the first one and then we'll pray. So this is the first seven verses of chapter two of the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the word of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant tea of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me pray. We just wanna ask you this morning in this place as your people gather together that we would know something more of your holiness, Jesus, as we read these words. Something more of your, just your, your otherness from us. Of your power, of your wonder and wrapped up within all of that, your love towards your people. And we just pray as we encounter that love this morning through your word, that you would do a work in our hearts, each one of us, that you would 
change us, transform us to become more like you as we study these words together. In Jesus' name, amen. Here at Liberty Church over the last six weeks, previous to this, we've been talking about some values, some things that we thought think are important to us as a church, who we are, the mission God's called us to in this city. But there's a challenge for us now to live all of that out and to live it out in a world which often can feel alien to us if you're a believer here in Jesus. Challenging worldviews, ideas, people around us. Sometimes our Christian faith doesn't feel like it fits. But yet this passage calls us, says to the one who conquers, it calls us to live life differently, to be able to win Jesus to conquer and live faithfully in our city. And we're gonna look at what that, what can that look like for us today? And the first thing to say as we work through this passage, the first thing to say to remind us of is that Jesus is with us. He's with us. He's with you right now. And we know that because it says here, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now there we go. If you are new to the book of Revelation, you'll be thinking, what on, is Jesus lost in a department store? What is going on? What are all these lampstands about? This is weird. Well, the best way to interpret the Bible is to use the rest of the Bible to help interpret it. And if you go back just one verse to the end of chapter one, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Very simple. These lampstands represent each of these churches. Jesus is with the church is what it's saying. And this idea of a lampstand is language it's taken from the temple that the Israelites built. Now you can read about that in the Old Testament. In books like Exodus, you can read the story and what they put, all those passages with all the intricate details of what they put in the temple, you can, they come alive in the book of Revelation. This golden lampstand was in the heart of the temple and it represents the tree of life, which was in the Garden of Eden. You can read that about that right at the start of the Bible, chapter one and two of Genesis where God walked in his garden amongst the animals, the trees with Adam and Eve. He, walked, he wanted to dwell with his people and he still does. He's walking amongst the church, he's with us. Should give us great encouragement. Not only is he with us, he knows us. Verse two of this starts, it says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. He knows us. Now, we all, we all like to be known. You know, we all wanna be known by people. But for most of us, there's a limit to how much we want to be known. I don't mind people knowing me, but do I really want them to know me? There's a deeper knowing that someone can have of you, which can be a bit scary, a bit terrifying to really open up your life, to really become vulnerable with someone that they might see, not just the bits you want them to see, not just your kind of social media profile, but 
they begin to see what's really going on in here. They get to see your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses, your flaws, your motives, good and bad, your desires. Do I want someone to really know that about me? That's a scary thing to think of. But actually, when you think about it, it's not scary at all. It's really a relief. In my experience, when I've really let people into my life, it builds a sense of trust, a sense of mutual love and affection, and it gives you courage. It gives you courage. You don't, you don't have to feel like you, you, don't need, you don't need to prove yourself anymore. You don't need to show off when people know what you're really like. That's what all friendships marriages, relationships, what, that's what they're, they're built on, is the openness, that vulnerability of one another. And the good news for you here is that Jesus knows you in that way. Actually, in an even deeper way than that. He knows you better than anyone's ever known you. He knows you better than you know yourself. <coughs> We've already been singing about it. Knowing the extent of all my sin. <laughs> he knows the extent of you. He knows all of you. And yet he's still chosen to love you. Isn't that remarkable? <coughs> if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you, you can know that too. That's what he's welcoming you into today. That's why we're here. It's not just to read a book, recite some words and sing some songs together. It's because we want to know God. We want to know his love, his fellowship. And when we know that he's with us, and we know that he really knows us, it gives us great strength to live out our faith in this world. It enables us to conquer when we know that he's with us. The third thing that we find here is this perseverance. He knows their works, their toil, their patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. He's commending this little church in Ephesus for their perseverance, for their patience, for their not growing weary. And why does Jesus make such a big deal about that? Well, because it's important. You see, when you're, when you're patient, you're patient towards something. You know, you're waiting for something. You know, when you get, if you get engaged to be married and the marriage, the wedding day is going to be in a year's time, you have to be patient for that. But you're patient for a reason, that you're heading somewhere. And if you're a believer in Jesus, we get to be patient because we're heading somewhere too. We get to be patient because we're living somehow, and this is what this book of Revelation is about in a sense, that we're living between the beginning and the end. We're living between the day of Jesus' resurrection he rose again from the dead when death was defeated, when he won this great victory for us. But the final consummation, the final moment of his victory, when we're all wrapped up in heaven with him forever, we're still waiting for that. And how do we bridge the gap to get there? We're patient, not very glamorous. This church in Ephesus, they don't read as very glamorous. They're kind of plodding along, just doing their stuff. And often that's the reality of what it is to follow Jesus. 
It's often not very glamorous, but there's patience and it bridges the gap. It doesn't just bridge the gap in terms of time, but patience is actually, patience, this endurance, this perseverance is uh, powerful in not just helping to bridge the gap, but also bringing the kingdom of God in a sense across the bridge to where you are. See, you know, as a father, if I lose my patience with my children, which does happen from time to time, when I lose my patience, I break something. You know, if with, your, with a device, with your phone, if you lose your patience and you fling it to the floor, you'll likely break it. When you lose patience, you break things. But in maintaining patience, you restore things. You build trust. You build courage. And in being patient in the kingdom of God, you bring something of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Something of his joy, his love, will suddenly come alive. A lady in this church was telling me a story just last week about a situation in her job where she had to be patient with someone who was just driving her up the wall. But she just knew she had to be patient with her over a series of meetings. And then finally she had this Zoom call with this lady. And this lady was quite frustrated and she said she just smiled at her. And just something just sort of broke in a good way. And she just brought a little taste of the kingdom of God into her workplace. Just into that work relationship, just by being patient just by smiling. She brought a little taste of the kingdom of heaven into that place. And by us being patient, we get to do the same. And part of being patient, being patient of persevering is learning the art of saying no. Which again, doesn't sound particularly glamorous. And it says here about the Nicolaitans that in verse six, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, first of all, no, it doesn't say that they hated them. They hated their works. And sometimes that is the way your heart has to respond to things that you see around you. And the Nicolaitans, we don't know an awful lot about them, but what they were trying to do, as far as we can tell, is essentially corrupt the church. They were trying to come into the people of God and bring a false teaching to lead them off in a different direction, away from Christ. That, that you can hate. That's demonic, it's sinful, you can hate that. But it's still not easy to say no when things come that often seem very seductive, very powerful, and you think, oh, it's a bit hard to be a Christian in this moment. You know, I know what the Bible says, but it would just be easier just to sort of conform. I'll just do what they say. And saying no can feel, it can feel like a negative thing, you know? Because it is the word no, it's negative. Why would I want to be negative? Ugh. But actually, to say no, if you think about it logically, it's just the flip side of saying yes, right? If you're a follower in Jesus, to become a Christian, what you said is, I'm going to say yes to Jesus. Very simply, I'm going to say yes to him. And I'm going to keep on saying yes to him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be obedient to him. I'm going to live my life in submission to his will. That's a long series of just saying yes, 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 day by day, over and over again. 
I just want to keep saying yes to Jesus. And that means that the things that you need to say no to become quite obvious. You just say no to anything that will undermine that yes that you've already said to Jesus. Things that detract from that great yes you said to him, you can say no to. You can turn your back on them. Because also you know that there's no goodness there. There's no lasting favor there. There's no lasting blessing there, as we will get to later as we go through this. We did learn to say no. Finally, well not finally, but perhaps the pinnacle of this letter, and each of these different letters has a sort of a major theme that it kind of brings out. And this one becomes quite obvious in verse four, where Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Let me read that again. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And what love is Jesus talking about? Because he doesn't actually make it clear. As in the object, what, is, what are they loving toward that they've stopped loving toward? What is it? And people argue about it. Is it, is it that the first love it talks about, is that love towards God? Or is it love towards other people? Well, I think perhaps theologically, the, the best way to answer that from the Bible would be to say both. It says in one John chapter four, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's a story in the book of Matthew where one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus and says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you if you come here on a Sunday morning and you throw your arms in the air and worship and sing and you've got a big smile on your face and then on a Monday morning you just despise everyone around you. Your heart is full of bitterness. You have no love for the people that you're working with. Then how can you love God? That's what that passage is saying. The two are completely linked together. They're in unison, in partnership together. To love God is to love and serve others in the same way that you love yourself. Because no, what he's not saying here to the church at Ephesus, he's not saying you're not loving quite enough or your love has kind of decreased, you know, the sort of barometer of love has dropped. He said, you've abandoned it. It's gone. And that can happen to us. And it can happen to us because love is difficult. It's dangerous. I don't mean 
movie love, Instagram love, which all appears very easy. But real love is difficult. If you're here and you're married, you'll know that to be true. If you're here and you've ever tried to build, build over an amount of time a, a true friendship, not the sort of friendship where you just say, oh, good morning, you know, what did you have for dinner last night? But a friendship where you really know someone. It's difficult. It's dangerous to really be vulnerable with somebody. That's challenging. It's not easy. To really learn what it is to put other people before yourself. It's dangerous. To really show compassion. You know, the, we have so much language in our society about empathy and sympathy, which are wonderful tools. But the Bible talks about compassion. There's something much deeper than that. Compassion actually it acts, it steps in, it seeks to serve and help and bless people. And it's difficult and it's dangerous and it can be rejected it can be turned away and that makes love painful sometimes and it's why perhaps you've abandoned love even to love God can feel difficult can feel dangerous because to love God is is to completely surrender your life in a childlike obedience to him that's dangerous. <laughs> to live your life like that, it's dangerous. But when that happens, you're not surrendering your life to a tyrant, but to one who loves you. You surrender your life to joy, to delighting in his mercies, to be embraced by his love. It can feel scary, but it's the most life-giving, powerful decision you can do. And yet we can reject it. We can, we can abandon it. Because it can seem challenging. My challenge to all of us this morning would be, perhaps if you know that to be true, that you either know you've abandoned your love for God or for people, or maybe even just one person around you, is to just let these words speak to you and don't walk away from the challenge here. Wonderfully, Jesus, he gives us an action plan. He doesn't just leave us floating. He gives us a three-step plan for success. Thank you, Jesus. He says this in verse five. First of all, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen if that's you today, you feel you've abandoned love, step number one is remember. Remember from where you've fallen. As in, look into your heart and maybe even do a bit of self-assessment. You know, what am I really like? I'm not saying this to bring you down, but there's moments where we come before the holiness of God and we suddenly, as we've been singing, we become aware of the extent of our sin, of our fallenness. But then when that happens, that's when the grace of God floods in. It reminds us that his love is greater than all of that. We remember not just how far we've fallen, 
but we remember his rescue for us. And then he says to us, just one word, he gives us repent, which might sound like a horrible religious word to you. Maybe you're not a believer here and it sounds like just harsh religious dogma. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Very simply, it's, it's turning your back. It's saying, I was going in that direction and that is gonna harm me. I'm gonna go this way. I'm gonna follow Jesus. It's very simple. Repent. And then he says this. You might think, because Jesus has talked about they've abandoned their love, you might think he says, remember, repent, and then love some more. He doesn't. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. See, this idea of love is, this is, a, this is an, an agape, it's an active love. It's expressed through action. It comes alive through active faith. So remember, repent, and do. Go, serve, love. And then it comes with a warning, which we mustn't skip over. The end of verse five, it says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let me read that again. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This building here was built as a Catholic church by the same architect that designed the Rijksmuseum and Central Station. He built it because he, as his church to worship in, he brought a, built a house down the street which he lived in as well. Um, but in the 1970s, about 40 years ago, this church closed its doors. I don't know what had happened to the people, the family, the church that met here, but they'd obviously dwindled to a point where this building was redundant for them. So they closed it. They deconsecrated it. I had a service where you basically say, this is no longer a place of worship. And squatters lived here for a number of years. They, knocked, they almost knocked it down. It was some people that live in the neighborhood rescued the building and now we get to meet here. Wonderful blessing for us. But there was a people here that, I don't know what happened to them, but something happened. Probably over many, many years, I'd imagine it was that they somehow abandoned the love they had at first. Now, you might be asking, does that mean I can lose my salvation? Is that what you're saying? No, 100% no. See, he doesn't say that he's gonna put out the candle on this lampstand, that he's gonna extinguish it. He's removing it. He's not putting it out. That's not how God acts towards his people. But it talks about in Corinthians that you can be saved through fire. That we can live a life where we're saved, we're rescued, but we abandon God in our hearts. And we just drift 
We'll talk about in one of the final letters. You become just lukewarm. All the hotness has drifted away. All the zeal, all the passion, all the love. But what Jesus is doing here, there are harsh words. They're harsh words. But they come from a place of love. Because if we go to that final letter to the church in Laodicea, and he says some harsh things to us in letter, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. But then he goes on to say, those whom I love are reproof and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. See, that's what Jesus is like. He gives us this warning to warn us. You know, if I see one of my children, or particularly when they were little, you know, go towards the sockets and put their fingers in, I'll warn them harshly because I want to rescue them out of it. And that's what Jesus is doing to us here. He's bringing a warning to your heart today because he loves you. He's got so much better for you. Michiel, after the first service this morning, reminded me that this building was deconsecrated, but if you go to the back there above the sink, it's in Dutch, so it might not work for all of you, but there's this beautiful message about the heart of Christ, which wonderfully, that's remained on that wall through the whole time. When there were squatters living here, people just in a mess, this message shining out, the heart of Christ. And the heart of Christ is that he's standing at the door and he knocks all the time. You might think, I just, I know I should repent, but I can't. He's, he's there, just let him in. He'll help you, he'll strengthen you. It will give you the grace that you need. See, because the wonderful thing is that, as I said at the start, the great story of this book is it's a story of his overcoming, of Jesus' great victory. And his, his victory doesn't depend on ours, but our victory does depend on his and you can get into the mindset of thinking it the other way around quite easily. You can think, I have to have victory to sort of prove that what Jesus did worked. And his victory doesn't depend on your victory. But your victory depends on his. That you can come to him today and receive the strength that you need, the grace you need, the power you need to regain that first love that you've lost. Because just wonderfully, even, even in the, the sort of the depths of our joylessness, when we hit the, the bottom and then we discover that there's still more bottom to get to, he breaks in, doesn't he? Many of us in this room know that. He's compassion doesn't stop beating towards us. His heart remains true for all of you.
Let me finish. Let me read a, a quote that my wife shared with me this week from a book by A.W. Pink. It says this, the whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding. Yet nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship. Jesus, we just want to thank you this morning for just this wonderful good news that to the one who conquers, we get to eat from the tree of life. That there's a one day ahead for us. There's an end that we get to a future with you in paradise forever with our God and Savior. But right now, we can conquer, not through our own strength, but through the lavishness of your grace poured out upon us. I just want to pray for for all of us right now, where we, for those who feel like they've abandoned love in whatever form that takes, I pray you'd help them just to repent today, just to turn their back. Remember how far they've fallen, but remember your grace. And you'd help them to follow you and to love and run hard after you. Amen.